0: When we think about the trumpet, we think of an instrument made out of brass. Uh, The ancient Israelites, however, they made a trumpet out of the ram's horn. Uh, They varied in size. Some of them were about the size of your forearm, and some of them were very large. And the, the trumpet that was made out of, out of Ram's horn is called shofar. And the shofar would be sounded, and its loud sound would mark important days and events in the Jewish calendar. For example, the shofar, the trumpet was sounded, and its loud sound announced the coming of the year of the Jubilee. When all the debts were forgiven and all, this, all the debtors were set free, and the shofar, the trumpet, was also blown to precede the making of an important announcement in the community of God's people, and the shofar, the trumpet, is also what the watchman sounded in order to warn a people of approaching danger. And if you remember chapter 56 and verse 9, you remember how God rebuked the blind and the silent watchmen, the leaders of Israel, who failed to warn God's people of God's coming judgment. Now, here, God calls Isaiah to sound the shofar. He calls Isaiah to sound the trumpet. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Judgment is coming, and it is the burden of the prophet to cry out, to declare the coming judgment. And what is that cry? We are going to, to focus our Reflections this morning along three issues. First, the right people are the wrong people. The right people are the wrong people. That is to say, you know, if only Isaiah had denounced the usual suspects, you know, people like the drunkards, the prostitutes, The thieves, the murderers, you know, they are the dregs of society, and they are the people who need a stern talking to, the usual suspects. And if Isaiah's criticisms were aimed at them, you know, there will be no scandal. There will be no difficulties. There will be no issues. Except Isaiah does not cry out against the usual suspects. Here, Isaiah charges them with covenant-breaking the people who prayed every day, the people who sought out God's Word, and people who fasted often. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness. You see, Isaiah's denunciation and his rebuke are not against the usual suspects, suspects of society, you know, the scandalous people. Rather, God's rebuke is against those who, who had all the markings of a serious commitment to God, people who prayed every day, people who read God's Word every day, people who fasted, Often, People who in every respect and by every appearance appearance seemed devoted to God. But they could not have been more lost. And so the question that arises is this. How can the right people be the wrong people? How is it that God's rebuke The prophetic denunciation is pointed at the people who seem to have everything together spiritually speaking. And and to make the matter simple, the problem and the reason why the right people became the wrong people is that their religion was not spiritual. And their religion was not spiritual. Now, I must say at this point, that when I say that their religion was not spiritual, that is in no way of an, in, an endorsement of the mindset that is very prevalent today that we hear often. And I mean when people say, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. I am spiritual but not religious. And it would be a grave mistake for us to think that people who say, I'm spiritual but not religious, it, it would be a mistake to think that they and we share some common ground, that they are potentially our allies. Because when people say, I am spiritual but not religious, what they actually mean by that is that I cannot accept any situation where I am not God. You see, I cannot accept any religion where I don't get to decide what is right and what is good and what is worthwhile. That's what it means when people say, I am spiritual but not religious. Because the only religion that is acceptable to them is is the religion in which way they get to play God. And when they say, I am spiritual but not religious, that means... You know, they never have to be humble enough to learn from other people. And they never have to be loving enough to endure imperfect people. And they never have to be needy enough to receive grace. And they never have to be lost enough to need a rescue. And when people say, I'm spiritual but not religious, that's just a way of seeking God on their own terms and not do as God requires of them. You know, that is actually true of people who belong to so-called organized religion and people who reject it. And it was true of the people of Israel against whom Isaiah uh, declares these words. Because what they all have in common is that they are seeking God on their own terms. And we need to realize that apart from doing what God commands with a glad obedience, we are all the wrong people. You could be a part of a church. You could be outside of it. You could have all the markings of serious religion or you could live a a immoral life. But regardless of your circumstances, if you are not doing what God commands with a glad and willing obedience, we are all wrong people. And Isaiah brings out two very particular issues to illustrate that. The first thing is he shows us what spiritual fasting is. Again, Isaiah uh, he, he denounces two right acts done with the wrong heart. Uh, the vast majority of the chapter is devoted to the topic of fasting, because people were fasting often, but it was not spiritual fasting. They were fasting, but in their fasting, they were not doing what God had commanded them, but they were seeking God on their own terms. And then Isaiah also focuses on Sabbath-keeping because in their Sabbath-keeping, they were not doing as God had commanded them. The first is, however, fasting. Look at verse 3. Israel complained to God, Why have we fasted? And you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? You know, it's, what's interesting is that the Old Testament only commands one day of fasting on the Day of Atonement. But there are, of course, other uh, fasting that we read about in the Old Testament. It was reserved for special circumstances to express your great mourning, uh, to seek God's favor in, in a terribly difficult circumstances. And so fasting represented a very serious commitment to God and seeking God's favor. And apparently these people fasted regularly. And it really gave the impression that they were very serious to God in their commitment to God and that they prayed a lot. But what's really interesting and fascinating is that Apparently, they had some sense that God was not on their side, even though they fasted a lot and they prayed a lot. And it's really interesting to me. How did they get the sense that God was not on their side? Maybe they learned it from Isaiah, from all his ministry, or maybe they sensed that, that for all their religion, they had no real deep assurance of God's blessing but what's really fascinating is that having a sense that God was not on their side instead of examining their own heart and their conduct they accuse God of unfairness why have we fasted and you see it not why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it you see what's happening They sense that something is wrong. They sense that God is not on their side. But instead of examining their hearts and their conduct, they're accusing God. And so God answers. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Now, this is the first of many indications in this chapter that the right relationship with God cannot be separated from right relationship with people. You cannot hope to have the right relationship with God when you treat people sinfully and poorly. They may fast all they want, but God says, fasting like yours this they will not make your voice to be heard on high." Because you see, skipping a few meals is not what God desires, and our stomach growling is not what pleases God. Instead, the fasting that pleases God is the sound of our heartbreaking in compassion for the suffering people. And the fasting that pleases God is the sound of chains of oppression breaking. So look at verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose, to lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. What is the yoke? The yoke is something that you put on animals to keep them working. You see, we live in a world that robs dignity from people that are made in God's image, And treats them as animals. Where and how? This world treats people as animals when it leaves people hungry, homeless, and unclothed. That's what God is saying here. Because the true fasting God asks, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh john newton remarked on luke chapter 14 verses 12 through 14 where jesus tells his disciples invite the poor to your meals not the people who will invite you back not the people who will pay you back But the people who cannot pay you back people who cannot invite you back invite them prefer the poor and of that John Newton said I believe there is no one passage so generally neglected by God's own people well that woke liberal social justice warrior John Newton of course It's really unfortunate, isn't it? Uh, because today we actually do hear con- condemnation against the poor, cynicism against suffering people. And we hear the kind of talk that really betrays a heart of heresy when people say, you know, it's because they haven't worked hard, they're lazy. They haven't worked hard that they are poor and it's because i have worked hard as if the good things in your life are solely due from your merit and your works and when people have that kind of an attitude it's an attitude that betrays one grace that god blesses us with things that we don't deserve and secondly that sin's effect upon the world is that for the sweat of our brows we reap not always the good fruit but thorns and thistles. The sin's presence and effect in the world means that there is not always justice for people that work hard. And so to have a kind of a cynicism and a condemning attitude toward the poor is not something that Christians should ever entertain as if the whole reality of grace and sin have somehow disappeared from our thinking and we need to remember that it was not some woke social justice warrior who remarked that there is not one passage so generally neglected by God's people as to inviting the poor into their homes. It was John Newton the champion of God's grace and I only don't have the space or time but I could quote many other reformed theologians and teachers who have said the same things And we need to see don't we that God calls the poor the hungry the naked people your own flesh Did you see that Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? In that God is telling his people, you know, we are like that priest, the Levite who saw suffering man, the robbed man, the half-dead man. And we took the long way around him to avoid him. Well, he's not my neighbor. I'm not obligated to help him. But what did Jesus say? To the person who asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, anyone who is in need, that's your neighbor. And here God is saying the people that are hungry, who are poor, who are naked, who are suffering, they are your flesh. And God calls them to break every yoke so that it may never oppress anyone again. And that is why, as God's people, who who understand the beauty of grace and the reality of sin and who understand something about God's heart, we cannot have a cynical, dismissive attitude about the poor and the suffering people. But there is a better way. When God says, is is it not to share your bread with the hungry to bring the homeless poor into your house? And God says, then then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall uh, spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted then shall your light arise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday and the lord he will guide you continually when when you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted you see that's that's god's heart for the suffering and that's his pleasure when his people share his heart and that's why the fasting that Israel practiced it didn't matter how often they fasted it didn't matter how loudly their stomachs were growling when their hearts were not breaking their fasting was not spiritual thirdly and finally we uh, We see spiritual Sabbath, spiritual Sabbath. And notice how Isaiah next turns his attention to Sabbath-keeping. And you realize it's uh, only just a couple of verses uh, he devotes to the topic of Sabbath-keeping, verses 13 and 14. But that is in no way an indication of the relative importance Of Sabbath keeping because you remember that back in chapter 56 he spent a a, a, he devoted a great deal of space uh, talking about Sabbath already and that is why he can afford to be brief here and as we saw then we realize the Sabbath is very revealing Because no one can set aside the whole day for God unless he loves the Lord and unless he has learned to organize his whole week for God's glory. Because if you live the rest of the week, with, uh, if God is absent from your heart and your mind, you know, Sabbath keeping becomes both impossible and dreadful. And that is why Sabbath keeping is so revealing of the condition of the heart. It tells you and it shows us what we love, how we have lived the rest of the week. Now, it does not mean that the Sabbath keeping means being in, inside the church for 24 hours. Thankfully, it doesn't mean that. Because Sabbath also means we cease from our earthly labors to rest. And when we cease from our work to rest, we are saying, we are acknowledging, and we are confessing that it is not the anxious labors of our hands that provide for us, but God. That's what that rest means. Now, you may well know that Once we think deeply about the subject of Sabbath, you know, we read that in our Confession of Faith that there are such things as works of necessity and mercy. You know, there are some things that must be done even on the Sabbath or even on the Lord's Day. You know, people who serve other people, who who engage in works of mercy. You know, that's really in keeping with the spirit of Sabbath. And when we do the works of necessity, (laughs) that is in in no way a violation of the spirit of Sabbath. But that being said, Sabbath-keeping really reveals our hearts. And too often, people today think that we make a stand for God in the voting booth and in the courtrooms. Now, that's probably true. But we forget that we actually make a stand for God, that we stand up for God and against the world when we keep the Sabbath holy. Because it is our Sabbath keeping that declares to the world that we love God, that we need Him, and that we trust not in the works of our hands But that we trust in God who provides for us and who gives us rest. That's why Sabbath keeping, setting aside the day to, to, to keep it holy, to devote it to the Lord. Again, it doesn't mean being in church, inside the church, all an entire day, but making a distinction on the Sabbath day. make it different than the rest of the week that's how we honor god and that's how we take a stand against the world and that is why god says here if you turn back your foot from the sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the sabbath a delight and the holy day of the lord honorable if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord." I think all of us need to grow in this grace, don't we? This is a lifelong project for us, a daily and weekly battle we have to be the people who take a stand for God and against the world to honor God and what's really beautiful here is that yes Isaiah blows the trumpet of warning But as was the case with fasting, he blew the trumpet of warning to those who fasted, but not in the way that pleased God. He also gave them gracious promise, didn't he? But if you pour out yourself for the poor, and if you truly fast in a spiritual way, then the Lord will guide you. You will have light in darkness. And so here, the warning against Sabbath breaking also leads to a promise of blessing. Because you see, God warns to save, and God yearns to save the wrong people and make them right. And this is the beauty and glory of it. We were all wrong people. We were all the wrong people because we did not share God's heart for the poor and we did not share God's heart for the oppressed. We closed our eyes to forget. And honoring the Lord and delighting in Him used to be a dreadful burden. And so what happened to us? What happened to us? Well, what happened is that Jesus broke the yoke of sin over us. And Jesus poured out himself to set us free. And Jesus brought us rest, Sabbath, from fear and from shame. And he has destined us for eternal Sabbath. And that's why you and I, who used to be the wrong people, became the right people. All because of God's mercy. And I want to ask you this morning, can you say with certainty that this is your story? Can you say with certainty that you, you used to be the wrong people? But by the mercy and grace of God, you became the right people. If not, this may become your story today. You can receive Jesus. Jesus, who had compassion on the oppressed, the suffering. He poured out himself that the yoke and the bondage of sin might break over us. And you can receive him today, too. And if you can say with confidence that this is your story, that you used to be the wrong people, but that God's mercy and grace have made you the right people, hear this. Yes, we hear the trumpet that sounded to warn of approaching judgment. But judgment has passed because we have also heard the trumpet That announced the year of Jubilee. Jubilee. All debts canceled. Prisoners set free. And the next trumpet that we will hear will be the trumpet that announces the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will take us into glory and honor. That's the beauty of it. That's the glory of it. And because of that, we know and we understand what it means to truly worship and follow God. Now, I know that you all do this because I know your lives, because I know your hearts. I know that you've invited people into your homes. I know that you have shared things with people in need. I know that. So hear these words not as a condemnation or judgment against you, but as a calling, a glorious and wonderful calling to have the heart of God, to be the men and women who walk after Jesus Christ, who pour out themselves for the needy, for the afflicted, whose hearts break for the oppressed. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Oh God, have mercy on us that we may never be satisfied with mere facade of knowing you and following you that we may not be self-satisfied with mere external conformity to religion, but that we would truly walk in Jesus, following in His footsteps, that our hearts may be conformed to His heart, that our conduct may become like His. And, O Lord, we pray, that we may live such a life not for the praise that comes from man, but for the praise that comes from you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.